Section 19 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section nineteen chapter sixty six part four the house of commons was now regularly divided into two parties the court and the country some were enlisted in the court party by offices nay a few by bribes secretly given them a practice first begun by clifford a dangerous minister but great numbers were attached merely by inclination, so far as they esteemed the measures of the court agreeable to the interest of the nation. Private views and faction had likewise drawn several into the country party, but there were also many of that party who had no other object than the public good. These disinterested members on both sides fluctuated between the factions, and gave the superiority sometimes to the court sometimes to the opposition. In the present emergence, a general distrust of the king prevailed, and the Parliament resolved not to hazard their money in expectation of alliances which they believed were never intended to be formed. Instead of granting the supply, they voted an address, wherein they besought His Majesty to enter into a league, offensive and defensive, with the states-general of the united provinces against the growth and power of the french king and for the preservation of the spanish netherlands and to make such other alliances with the confederates as should appear fit and useful to that end they supported their advice with reasons and promised speedy and effectual supplies for preserving his majesty's honour and ensuring the public safety the king pretended the highest anger at this address which he represented as a dangerous encroachment upon his prerogative he reproved the commons in severe terms and ordered them immediately to be adjourned it is certain that this was the critical moment when the king both might with ease have preserved the balance of power in europe which it had since cost this island a great expense of blood and treasure to restore and might by perseverance have at last regained in some tolerable measure after all past errors the confidence of his people this opportunity being neglected the wound became incurable and notwithstanding his momentary appearances of vigour against france and popery and their momentary inclinations to rely on his faith he was still believed to be at bottom engaged in the same interests and they soon relapsed into distrust and jealousy. The secret memoirs of this reign, which have since been published, prove beyond a doubt that the king had at this time concerted measures with France, and had no intention to enter into a war in favor of the Allies. He had entertained no view, therefore, even when he pawned his royal word to his people, than to procure a grant of money and he trusted that, while he eluded their expectations, he could not afterwards want pretenses for palliating his conduct. Negotiations, meanwhile, were carried on between France and Holland, 
and an eventual treaty was concluded that is all their differences were adjusted provided they could afterwards satisfy their allies on both sides this work though in appearance difficult seemed to be extremely forwarded by further bad successes on the part of the confederates and by the great impatience of the hollanders when a new event happened which promised a more prosperous issue to quarrel with france and revived the hopes of all the english who understood the interest of their country the king saw with regret the violent discontents which prevailed in the nation and which seemed every day to augment upon him desirous by his natural temper to be easy himself and to make everybody else easy he sought expedients to appease those murmurs which as they were very disagreeable for the present might in their consequences prove extremely dangerous he knew that during the late war with holland the malcontents at home had made applications to the prince of orange and if he continued still to neglect the prince's interest and to thwart the inclinations of his own people he apprehended lest their common complaints should cement a lasting union between them he saw that the religion of the duke inspired the nation with dismal apprehensions and though he had obliged his brother to allow the young princesses to be educated in the protestant faith something further he thought was necessary in order to satisfy the nation he entertained therefore proposals for marrying the prince of orange to the lady mary the elder princess and heir apparent to the crown for the duke had no male issue and he hoped by so tempting an offer to engage him entirely in his interests a peace he purposed to make such as would satisfy france and still preserve his connections with that crown and he intended to sanctify it by the approbation of the prince whom he found to be extremely revered in england and respected throughout europe all the reasons for this alliance were seconded by the solicitations of danby and also of temple who was at that time in england and charles at last granted permission to the prince when the campaign should be over to pay him a visit the king very graciously received his nephew at newmarket he would have entered immediately upon business but the prince desired first to be acquainted with the lady mary and he declared that contrary to the usual sentiments of persons of his rank he placed a great part of happiness in domestic satisfaction and would not upon any consideration of interest or politics match himself with a person disagreeable to him he was introduced to the princess whom he found in the bloom of youth and extremely amiable both in her person and her behavior the king now thought that he had a double tie upon him and might safely expect his compliance with every proposal he was surprised to find the prince decline all discourse of business and refuse to concert any terms for the general peace till his marriage should be finished he foresaw he said from the situation of affairs that his allies were likely to have hard terms and he never would expose himself to the reproach of having sacrificed their interest to promote his own purposes charles still believed notwithstanding the cold severe manner of the prince that he would abate of this rigid punctilio of honour and he protracted the time hoping by his own insinuation and address 
as well as by the allurements of love and ambition, to win him to compliance. One day Temple found the prince in very bad humor, repenting that he had ever come to England, and resolute in a few days to leave it. But before he went, the king, he said, must choose the terms on which they should hereafter live together. He was sure it must be like the greatest friends, or the greatest enemies. And he desired Temple to inform his master next morning of these intentions. Charles was struck with this menace, and foresaw how the prince's departure would be interpreted by the people. He resolved, therefore, immediately to yield with a good grace, and having paid a compliment to his nephew's honesty, he told Temple that the marriage was concluded, and desired him to inform the duke of it, as of an affair already resolved on. The duke seemed surprised, but yielded a prompt obedience, which, he said, was his constant maxim to whatever he found to be the king's pleasure no measure during this reign gave such general satisfaction all parties strove who should most applaud it and even arlington who had been kept out of the secret told the prince that some things good in themselves were spoiled by the manner of doing them as some things bad were mended by it but he would confess that this was a thing so good in itself that the manner of doing it could not spoil it the marriage was a great surprise to Lewis, who, accustomed to govern everything in the English court, now found so important a step taken not only without his consent, but without his knowledge or participation. A conjunction of England with the Allies, and a vigorous war in opposition to French ambition, were the consequences immediately expected, both abroad and at home. But to check these sanguine hopes, the king, a few days after the marriage, prolonged the adjournment of the Parliament from the 3rd of December to the 4th of April. This term was too late for granting supplies, or making preparations for war, and could be chosen by the king for no other reason than as an atonement to France for his consent to the marriage. It appears also that Charles secretly received from Louis the sum of two millions of livres, on account of this important service the king however entered into consultations with the prince together with danby and temple concerning the terms which it would be proper to require of france after some debate it was agreed that france should restore lorraine to the duke with tournay valunchien conde ath chaleroy courtray oudenard and bunch to spain in order to form a good frontier for the low countries the prince insisted that france comte should likewise be restored and charles thought that because he had patrimonial estates of great value in that province and deemed his property more secure in the hands of spain he was engaged by such views to be obstinate in that point but the prince declared that to procure but one good town to the spaniards in flanders he would willingly relinquish all those possessions as the king still insisted on the impossibility of wresting france comte from louis the prince was obliged to acquiesce notwithstanding this concession to france the projected peace was favorable to the allies and it was a sufficient indication of vigor in the king that he had given his assent to it he further agreed to send over a minister instantly to paris 
in order to propose these terms. This minister was to enter into no treaty. He was to allow but two days for the acceptance or refusal of the terms. Upon the expiration of these, he was presently to return. And in case of refusal, the king promised to enter immediately into the confederacy. To carry so imperious a message, and so little expected from the English court, Temple was the person pitched on, whose declared aversion to the French interest was not likely to make him fail of vigor and promptitude in the execution of his commission. But Charles next day felt a relenting in this assumed vigor. Instead of Temple, he dispatched the Earl of Feversham, a creature of the Duke's, and a Frenchman by birth. And he said that the message being harsh in itself, it was needless to aggravate it by a disagreeable messenger. The prince left London, and the king, at his departure, assured him that he never would abate in the least point of the scheme concerted, and would enter into war with Lewis if he rejected it. Lewis received the message with seeming gentleness and complacency. He told Feversham that the King of England well knew that he might always be master of the peace. But some of the towns in Flanders it seemed very hard to demand, especially Tournay, upon whose fortifications such immense sums had been expended. He would therefore take some short time to consider of an answer. Feversham said that he was limited to two days' stay, but when that time was elapsed, he was prevailed on to remain some few days longer, and he came away at last without any positive answer. Lewis said that he hoped his brother would not break with him for one or two towns, and with regard to them too, he would send orders to his ambassador at London to treat with the king himself. Charles was softened by the softness of France, and the blow was thus artfully eluded. The French ambassador, Barillon, owned at last that he had orders to yield all except Tournay, and even to treat about some equivalent for that fortress, if the king absolutely insisted upon it. The prince was gone who had given spirit to the English court, and the negotiation began to draw out into messages and returns from Paris. By intervals, however, the king could rouse himself and show still some firmness and resolution. Finding that affairs were not likely to come to any conclusion with France, he summoned, notwithstanding the long adjournment, the Parliament on the 15th of January, an unusual measure, and capable of giving alarm to the French court. Temple was sent for to the council, and the king told him that he intended he should go to Holland in order to form a treaty of alliance with the states, and that the purpose of it should be, like the Triple League, to force both France and Spain to accept of the terms proposed. Temple was sorry to find this act of vigor qualified by such a regard to France, and by such an appearance of indifference and neutrality between the parties. He told the king that the resolution agreed on was to begin the war in conjunction with all the Confederates, in case of no direct and immediate answer from France that this measure would satisfy the prince, the allies, and the people of England, advantages which could not be expected from such an alliance with Holland alone, that France would be disobliged, and Spain likewise, nor would the Dutch be satisfied with such a faint imitation of the Triple League, a measure concerted when they were equally at peace with both parties. 
For these reasons, Temple declined the employment, and Lawrence Hyde, second son of Chancellor Clarendon, was sent in his place. The Prince of Orange could not regard without contempt such symptoms of weakness and vigor conjoined in the English councils. He was resolved, however, to make the best of a measure which he did not approve and as spain secretly consented that her ally should form a league which was seemingly directed against her as well as france but which was to fall only on the latter the states concluded the treaty in the terms proposed by the king meanwhile the english parliament met after some new adjournments and the king was astonished that notwithstanding the resolute measures which he thought he had taken great distrust and jealousy and discontent were apt at intervals still to prevail among the members though in his speech he had allowed that a good peace could no longer be expected from negotiation and assured them that he was resolved to enter into a war for that purpose the commons did not forbear to insert in their reply several harsh and even unreasonable clauses upon his reproving them they seemed penitent and voted that they would assist his majesty in the prosecution of the war a fleet of ninety sail an army of thirty thousand men and a million of money were also voted great difficulties were made by the commons with regard to the army which the house judging by past measures believed to be intended more against the liberties of england than against the progress of the french monarch to this perilous situation had the king reduced both himself and the nation in all debates severe speeches were made and were received with seeming approbation the duke and the treasurer began to be apprehensive of impeachments many motions against the king's ministers were lost by a small majority the commons appointed a day to consider the state of the kingdom with regard to popery and they even went so far as to vote that how urgent soever the occasion they would lay no further charge on the people till secured against the prevalence of the catholic party in short the parliament was impatient for war whenever the king seemed averse to it but grew suspicious of some sinister design as soon as he complied with their request and seemed to enter into their measures the king was enraged at this last vote he reproached temple with his popular notions as he termed them and asked him how he thought the house of commons could be trusted for carrying on the war should it be entered on when in the very commencement they made such declarations the uncertainties indeed of charles's conduct were so multiplied and the jealousies on both sides so incurable that even those who approached nearest the scene of action could not determine whether the king ever seriously meant to enter into a war or whether if he did the house of commons would not have taken advantage of his necessities and made him purchase supplies by a great sacrifice of his authority the king of france knew how to avail himself of all the advantages which these distractions afforded him by his emissaries he presented to the dutch the imprudence of their depending on england where an indolent king averse to all war especially with france and irresolute in his measures was actuated only by the uncertain breath of a factious parliament to the aristocratical party he remarked the danger of the prince's alliance with the royal family of england 
and revived their apprehensions, lest, in imitation of his father, who had been honored with the same alliance, he should violently attempt to enlarge his authority, and enslave his native country. In order to enforce these motives with further terrors, he himself took the field very early in the spring, and after threatening Luxembourg, Mons, and Namur, he suddenly sat down before Ghent and Ypres, and in a few weeks made himself master of both places. This success gave great alarm to the Hollanders, who were nowise satisfied with the conduct of England, or with the ambiguous treaty lately concluded, and it quickened all their advances towards an accommodation. Immediately after the Parliament had voted the supply, the king began to enlist forces, and such was the ardor of the English for a war with France, that an army above twenty thousand men, to the astonishment of Europe, was completed in a few weeks. Three thousand men, under the Duke of Monmouth, were sent over to secure Austin. Some regiments were recalled from the French service. A fleet was fitted out with great diligence and a quadruple alliance was projected between England, Holland, Spain, and the Emperor. End of section 19, chapter 66, part 4. Recording by Jim Dennison, J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N, voice.com.